If you'll find your place in your Bible with me this morning at Psalm chapter 19, and just a little while we're going to be reading several verses uh, from that psalm, but today we continue in this series that we started uh, a few weeks ago called Seven Habits of Deeply Spiritual People. And I thought it might be helpful for me to stop for just a moment and define for you what I mean by somebody who is deeply spiritual. I'm not talking about something that's ethereal or something that's mystical. I'm talking about something that's literal and something that's practical. It's very much the idea of what the Bible tells us in the Old Testament about a man named Enoch. It says that Enoch walked with God and he was not. What does it mean to be deeply spiritual? It means to be somebody who walks with God every single day of his or her life. I walk with God. It's very much what is meant by the phrase about Abraham when it says that Abraham was the friend of God. Can you think of a better friend to have than to have God as your friend? And that means that Abraham had a relationship with God that was deep and it was rich and it was full, it was meaningful. It means when we talk about being deeply spiritual people, it means what it says about David when it says about King David that he was a man after God's own heart, a man who was pursuing the heart of God, who was after God with all of his being. It means what was said about the Apostle Paul, actually what Paul himself had to say when he said that I may know him, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, that I may know him. That's what it means to be deeply spiritual. We're not talking about something mystical here. We're not talking about some kind of Zen experience that a lot of people talk about. Let's just empty our minds of everything and let whatever comes in fill us up and we'll all of a sudden feel better about ourselves. We're not talking about any of that. We're talking about a real living relationship with the almighty God of heaven. Instead of just snorkeling across the surface of all that God is and all God wants to do, it means deep diving into a relationship where you're growing in the fullness of your understanding and your knowledge and in grace, and you're becoming more and more like Jesus every single day. The first habit that we talked about over the course of two messages was that of worship. Uh, if we're going to be a people who are deeply spiritual, who have a heart for God, who are seeking God with all of their being, who are friends of God, who are walking with God, we've got to learn to worship. We've got to learn to worship personally and privately. We've got to learn to work, worship corporately in the gatherings of the people of God. But today we're going to talk about this matter of the Scripture itself and the importance of the Scripture in our lives when it comes to the matter of being a deeply spiritual person. John Piper is a well-known name. He is a contemporary of our day. He's a theologian. He's an author. He was a pastor. On one occasion, he said, I've never met a mature, fruitful, strong, spiritually discerning Christian who is not full of Scripture, devoted to regular meditation on Scripture, and given to storing it in the heart through Bible memorization. Then he finishes by saying, and that's no coincidence. It's not something that just happens to you, but it's something that's real, and it's something that's intentional that occurs in our lives. When we allow the word of Christ to dwell in us, Jesus said we're to dwell in him, we're to abide in him, and his word is to abide in us. 
Paul put it this way in the book of Colossians. He said, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In other words, if we're going to be a deeply spiritual person, not only must we be people who worship God, we must be people who are reading his word and learning and studying his word. You know, common sense tells us that we have to know his word to have a meaningful walk with him, doesn't it? Can you remember, some of you will remember well, but can you remember back when desktop computers were first coming out? And, you know, today we carry a computer in our hands everywhere we go, but there was a time that you couldn't carry that computer in your hand. It took up an entire desktop, and it was a rectangular box made by IBM, and sitting on top of that rectangular metal box was a screen. And if you got all the wires rightly plugged in, if you got them all rightly plugged in, and you plugged it into the wall and you turned on the switch, it brought you up to this glorious screen with a blinking cursor. And then you had to do what? You had to go get those manuals, whatever those manuals were. There were several in my box. And you had to read the manuals. I remember going to a Barnes of Noble one time when I was traveling somewhere. And I went to the section on computers. And I was looking for that section, where that book where it said, Computers for Dummies. Because when I opened that book, none of it made sense to me. But the longer I have dealt with it, the more I have used the computer, the more comfortable I've become with it. Today, computers are, uh, you almost don't need a manual. You plug them in. But when it comes to some of the programs that are operating in the computer, you've got to be willing to go to the help screen or you've got to be willing to ask somebody to help you to be able to deal with the different things that will arise when you're using that computer. I mean, if you're going to know a computer, you're going to know how to program it. You're going to know how to use it. You're going to know how to use the programs. You've got to read the book. Before we left on vacation a couple of weeks ago, <clears throat> a little red light came on my dashboard. I don't like lights on my dashboard, especially when they're red. So I just, turned the, the, I just pushed the button and turned the car off. That's the best thing to do, just turn the car off. I, I pushed the button again, and it came back on, but the light didn't come back on. So in my thinking, everything's good. It's all taken care of. We've got no problems. I get to the beach, and one day I push the button. Actually, one of my children pushed the button on the car in order to start the car, and there comes that red light. Do you know where you have to go if you want to know what that red light means? Yeah, you, you say to the dealership. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's where you go when you, you don't know what that red light means if you're in town. You know where you have to go? You have to go to that manual that's inside that glove box. And have you ever looked at that manual inside that glove box? Even with my glasses on, I can't read that book. The type is so small. And then I'm not looking for words. You know what I'm looking for? I'm looking for pictures. Get, give me a picture of what this light looks like, and then maybe out to the side I'll find out what it what it means. Do you understand what I'm telling you? If you're going to understand your car, you're going to understand how to operate a computer. If you're going to know how to use your phone, you got to be willing to read the book. If you're going to know how to walk with God, you're going to know how to be a friend of God. If you're going to know that you're a man or a woman after the heart of God, or you're a person who says, I want to know him. I want to know him. It means that you've got to be willing to get into the book. This is the instruction manual. And by the way, you've got, if you're a Christian, you've got the greatest interpreter of Scripture who lives in you and goes everywhere with you. 
in the person of the Holy Spirit. I mean, every time you and I open our Bible, do you realize that we're entering into communion with God? Every time we open our Bible, God is speaking off the pages. We might not be listening. We might not hear all that he's saying, but he's speaking to us through this book, this eternal book that we hold in our hands. What I want to do for the next few minutes is I want to take you into this psalm, and I want to show you why the Scripture is so very important in our lives. But to do that, I want you to let me imagine with you for a few minutes. I want you to turn on your imagination. I realize that today we don't like to think too much. We want somebody else to think for us and put it on the screen. I want you to turn on your imagination. David is the author of Psalm 19. We we don't know exactly the period of his life when he wrote this psalm, but I like to imagine that he probably did it when he was a younger man and he was still tending his father's sheep. You can imagine he spent all day out in the sunlight leading his sheep from one pasture field to another pasture field, taking them down to the still water so that they could get water to drink. He fights off the bear and he fights off the lion and whatever else may come to destroy or take away the life of any of his sheep. That's what a shepherd does. He defends the sheep. He protects the sheep. He provides for the sheep. And David's been doing that all day, but now it's evening. The sun has set in the west and He brings the sheep into the sheepfold, this rock uh, enclosure that has one doorway in and out. And all of the sheep are now inside that sheepfold, and David sits down there in that opening because the only way in and out is through David. He is the door. Hey, I know another person who is the ultimate door. His name is Jesus Christ. The only way into the sheepfold to be a child of the living God is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And David is sitting in that doorway, and the sun has gone down, and now the darkness of the sky. There are no city lights in that day. There are no cars driving by with their headlights. There are no houses and neighborhoods that are lit up with electricity. It's just David sitting there in the night looking up into the beauty of the sky that's above him, and there he sees the moon that which reflects the light of the sun and gives us light during the nighttime hours. Maybe he notices the different shades of of color that are on the moon. Maybe those darker grays and those others that are there on the moon. And he looks at it for a little while and he ponders it in his mind about the beauty of the moon. You know, that moon, it isn't nearly as hot in the evening as it is during the day when that sun is shining. But then maybe he looks up into the sky and he boxes off a little area of the sky above him and he begins counting the stars. I'm going to count all the stars tonight. And he counts every star that he can find inside that box. By the way, there's a lot of stars beyond that box that your eye can't see. But he counts all the stars and he boxes off another area and he starts counting all the stars that are in that box. And before long, he realizes, I'll never finish this project. The minutes have turned into hours and the hours have turned into the night. And before he knows it, coming up of the horizon out in the east is the daylight. And there comes the sun. You've watched it. I sat on the balcony of our port, of our uh, condo, watching the sun coming up over the ocean. Uh, isn't it beautiful? I wish God had put the sunrise in the middle of the day rather than that early in the morning. <laughs> but isn't it beautiful? 
You sit out there and you watch it. It gets a little bit lighter and more light and more light until finally you see a little bit of the sun shining out over the horizon and a little more and a little more and a little more until you think, oh, a little less, a little less. It's hot. It's hot. David's watching the sun as it comes up and David marvels because he knows the Hebrew scripture. I hope you know it. I hope you're not listening to the evolutionist. They don't have the answer to the origin of the earth or the origin of life in spite of what they say. You don't have to check your brains at the door of your church when you walk in and say, well, from this point on, we don't think science anymore. The reality is he looks up and he knows the Hebrew scripture and he knows who is the creator of it all. He knows that he spoke everything into existence And then over those seven, excuse me, those six days, he put everything where he wanted it to be. He put it all together so that we have this beauty that we call nature. We have this beauty in this revelation of God in the skies above us. And if you find yourself on a mountainside or even out in the field somewhere in the dark of night and you can lay on your back and look up and you can see the beauty of the heavens above you, If you can come to any other conclusion than that there is a designer and a creator, then you've got more faith than I have. Because there's nothing in this world that comes into existence without there being somebody who is an originator, somebody who is a creator, somebody who is an inventor. David looks up and David sees the beauty and the majesty of the sky and he begins to think about his God. Look what he says, verse 1. Psalm chapter 19, he says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. You hear what he says? Do you realize that there's nobody that can look at creation and say, I don't know there's a God? There is nobody who can look at creation and say, I don't know there's a God? The reality is when you look at creation, God is shouting at us. There are no words being spoken. There there are no vocal cords that are moving. But God is speaking. I am the one who put all this in its place. I am the one who created everything there is. And it shows forth the glory and the majesty of the almighty God. The firmament is his handiwork. It's not a matter of chance and Long periods of time is the work of the designer, the architect, whose name is Elohim, whose name is Yahweh, whose name is Jehovah. He created it all. He goes on, verse 2, day unto day. This goes on every single day. He says, day unto day, it utters speech. Hey, this is speech you can't hear with your physical ears. This is speech, listen to me, this is speech that you hear with your eyes. Did you know you can hear with your eyes? Are y'all with me? This is speech you can hear with your eyes because you look at it and you know it's speaking to you day unto day, utter speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. You look up and you know that there's a God who's greater. The creator is always greater than his creation, right? The inventor is always greater than his invention, right? He continues, verse 3, there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. There is nobody that's outside of the revelation of the skies around them. There is nobody. Isn't that what Romans chapter 1 means? That nobody is without excuse. 
that, that men can look up and they can see the creation of God and they can know that there is a God because of that creation that millions and billions of years don't bring about order. They bring about disorder. Listen to what he said. Romans chapter 1, verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. They are without excuse. Listen to me today. You may choose to disbelieve this book. You may choose to disbelieve his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, but the reality is you will not escape if you don't come to Jesus and trust him as your Savior. You will not escape the judgment of God for your unbelief if you do not come to Jesus and trust him for eternal life. He goes on, verse 4, their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world, the line. Some of your translations will translate it as the word sound. But the Hebrew word literally means a measuring line. When you look up into heaven, you recognize that there is a God. And if there is a God, it means I have to answer to that God. I am responsible to that God. That line has gone out through all the world. And all their words, their words to the end of the world. Everybody can look up and know there's a God. Then he talks about the sun. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun. Now watch how he does this, this beautiful picture of a Jewish wedding. Notice it, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Doesn't it seem like the days get faster and faster to you? <laughs> okay, so you're still young. You think it's never going to pass quickly enough. Can I ever get out of college? Can I ever get to my career? I can remember when I used to think, am I ever going to get married? Will, will we ever get to the wedding day? And my father-in-law loved to pick on me and tell me over and over, David, the rapture's going to occur for your wedding. Rapture's going to occur before your wedding. You don't need to worry about the wedding. The rapture's going to occur before your wedding. And 46 years later, Mary's saying, I wish the rapture had occurred before our wedding. <laughs> It's like a bridegroom. The son is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Every day he runs that same race right across the sky, just like he always does. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit, that's its path to the other end. You know, the sun never gets up in the north and goes down in the south. It, it always gets up in the east and goes down in the west, right? Unless your, your compass is messed up. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. Oh, did we find that out? That's why we get those umbrellas on the beach. I'm looking for shade when that sun's out about 11 o'clock, noon, or 1 o'clock. Right? And so he's looking up into the heavens above, and he's talking about the skies above him. And you can see David, is, he's processing all of this in his mind, and he's thinking about the greatness of his God, the greatness of the God of Israel, the greatness of the God of all of mankind, who's made all of this and who's put all of it in its place. And it glorifies God, and it speaks to every single person, though they don't hear it with their ears, they hear it with their eyes. And they know there must be the creator God. But then he moves, and where we're going to spend the next few minutes, from 
This matter of the revelation of God in the sky to the revelation of God in the scriptures. And if you're keeping notes, you're going to want to write these things down. We're going to go through them quickly, but I hope you'll keep a tab on these things because this is the reason why you ought to be reading your Bible. If you hold this book in your hand and this is the eternal, inspired, inerrant, infallible word of the living God, how can you lay it aside and not pick it up and read what it says? If you want to know God, if you want to be a friend of God, if you want to have a heart for God, if you want to walk with God, you got to know what he says. Let's talk first of all about the sufficiency of Scripture, verses 7 to 9. I want you to notice, first of all, it converts the soul. Look at verse 7. The law is perfect, converting the soul. The word convert means to restore something to its original condition. Can I just tell you that when you read the Word of God, you find comfort and you find peace and you find hope and you find help and you find strength. You find correction, you find confession, but you find all of these things in this book that we call the Bible. Aren't we thankful that it converts and it restores the soul? Earlier this year, I was uh, having a physical problem going on, and I'll just be honest with you, I became depressed, extremely depressed. Only the second time in my life that I've ever been that depressed in my entire 60, going on 65 years that I was ever that depressed. Numbness in my feet that moved up into my calves, that moved up into my thighs, that comes all the way across the middle of my body. I didn't know what was going on. And the doctors looked at me and they said, what in the world? Four MRIs, a CAT scan, uh, a nerve conduction test. Oh, the joy of a nerve conduction test. <laughs> Multiple blood tests. I still have four more, not blood tests, I still have four more tests to go. I was depressed. That was why I wasn't here for two Sundays. I couldn't bear to stop to get everything together, to pull myself together, to be able to get to the pulpit and to preach the word of the living God. I called some of the staff to my house and I said, you got to take care of this for the next few weeks. I sat in my chair. By the way, I don't recommend doing what I did. It was the wrong thing to do. I sat in my chair and I read the Bible almost nonstop. If I quoted a verse of scripture once, this particular verse once, I quoted it a thousand times. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. I quoted Psalm 121. I will lift up mine eyes into the hills from which comes my help. My help comes from the Lord. I read the Psalms, the 150 chapters of the Psalms twice through. I read numerous other books of the Scripture. I was bathing my soul in the Word because I knew that what I needed was not medicine. What I needed was the restoring of the Word. I'm glad to be able to stand before you today. I still have all the same symptoms. No symptoms have gone away. They're exactly like they were when they began at the end of January and the first of February, but I'm ready to go forward in the power and the energy of the Holy Spirit to see God do something great and to see God do something mighty. Why? Because the Word of God, it's sufficient to convert the soul. It instructs the simple. Notice it. Chapter 19, verse 7, the second part, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Do you know what I mean when I say the simple? 
When we talk about the person who is simple, we're talking about somebody who believes anything. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 15 says, the simple believes every word, but the prudent concerns, uh, considers well his steps. The simple believes every word. I want to believe what people say to me. I, I want to believe the best about people, but I've learned over the course of my life that you've got to take everything, with, as my mother would say, with a grain of salt. You got to take everything with a measure of skepticism. You can't be simple minded that you just believe anything and everything that comes along. You got to have some, what's the word? It starts with the letter D discernment. You got to have some discernment in life, or you end up making really bad choices and going down really bad paths. But do you hear what he says? Do you see what he says? That the scripture instructs the simple. It educates us. It brings to us an insight and an understanding. It gives to us wisdom. Do you know what wisdom is when the Bible describes it? Wisdom is seeing life from God's point of view. It's being able to see things through the lens of God rather than just the lens of the secular. Warren Wiersbe, who, as I've told you before, is probably my most favorite of all my authors that I read written more than 150 books, more than 200 articles, published articles. He's in heaven now. Warren Wiersbe said it's popular and politically correct to be open-minded. Don't you like that word? The other word they use is tolerant. To be open-minded and uncritical of what other people think or believe, except when it comes to cashing a check when you're broke, getting a prescription filled when they're, when they're sick, or asking directions when they're lost. Most people don't believe in absolutes. They insist that there's no such thing as objective truth. According to them, whatever feels good down inside is truth for you. Oh, man. Nobody has the right, he says, to criticize you for what you believe. Apply that philosophy, he says, to money, to medicine, to mechanics, or to maps, and see how successful you will be. And yet we have a whole group of people who profess to know the name of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ, who are so simple-minded that they believe anything and everything because it sounds good. Not only does the sufficiency of the Scripture convert the soul and instruct the simple, it rejoices the heart. Look at chapter, chapter 19, verse 8. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Aren't you thankful? The psalmist says in Psalm 30, verse 5, that weeping lasts for the night. But what comes in the morning? Joy. Can you say it with me? Joy comes in the morning. The word of God rejoices the heart. It not only rejoices the heart, it enlightens the way. Verse 8, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the way. Don't you like what Psalm 119, verse 105 says? Your word will be a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It endures the ages, chapter 19, verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. This book isn't going away. It's settled in heaven forever. You realize that the Bible is the most despised, derided, denied, disputed, dissected, and debated book in all history and yet through all of those attacks, through all of those centuries from those who are within religious or within Christendom and those that are outside of Christendom, do you know what's still here? The Bible is still here. 
The Bible's still the most read, the most published, the most translated book in the world. And most importantly, if you read it, it's a book that'll transform your life. You ever heard the name Voltaire? Some of you heard it, but you don't know much about Voltaire. He was a French philosopher, and he was a brilliant atheist. When I say a brilliant atheist, he had a lot of, he was, he was of the intellectual community. He was a brilliant atheist. He wrote a number of pamphlets about the Bible and deriding the truthfulness of the Bible. And he made a bold statement one time. He said, 100 years from today, the Bible will be a forgotten book. But today, nobody even remembers that quote. But you know what they do remember? They remember the book they're holding in their hands. And the ultimate irony of it all is that after Voltaire died for nearly 100 years, his homestead was used as the book depository. Now listen, for the French Bible Society. They actually sold Bibles out of his house. And today it's a museum. People don't even know much about Voltaire. But nobody forgets the Bible. A book over 1,600 years, written over 1,600 years in three different languages, on three different continents by 40 different authors, and yet it has one central theme, God loves you, and he sent his son Jesus to die for you, and by trusting in Jesus Christ for eternal life, he'll save you today. He'll make you his child today. This book we call the Bible it also reveals, it reveals the truth. Look at verse 9, second part of verse 9. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. They are true. Get that? They are true and righteous altogether. The Word of God reveals the truth. You say, well, I'm studying truth in the halls of academia. Well, you may be studying some aspects of truth, but if you're not studying the Bible and reading the Bible for yourself, you're not getting the core of what is truth. You got to read the scripture. You got to know what the Bible says. American history tells us about a young skeptic who was surprised to see Abraham Lincoln reading his Bible one day. Mr. Lincoln responded to the young man and said, take all that you can of this book upon reason and the balance on faith and you will live and die a happier man. Amen. You better not discount this book because this book is the book of truth. Before I'll listen to the scientists, I'll listen to God. I'm going to listen to God because God knows a whole lot more than the most intellectual. Put all of their intellectual knowledge together and they're all dumb compared to the almighty God of heaven. Not only the sufficiency of Scripture, we want to talk about the significance of Scripture. I want you to know that you want to read your Bible, the significance of Scripture. Notice verse 10, verse A. I want you to see this greatest possession. He says, more to be desired. This book that we're talking about, he uses all of these different uh, words, law, testimony, statutes, commandment, all of these different things he uses as synonyms for the word of God. And then he comes in verse 10, he says, more to be desired are they than gold. Yea, than much fine gold. Do you realize what you've got in your hands? You've got Fort Knox in your hands. Are y'all with me? you got Fort Knox in your hands. It's the greatest possession. It's not only the greatest possession, it's the greatest pleasure. Look at the second part of verse, five, uh, verse 10. 
yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. It's the greatest pleasure. We have people in our church who have beehives. Now, I'm thankful that they have beehives because I don't want to have beehives. One of the men, I heard him telling the story how some of those bees got up underneath the hood that you wear when you're dealing with them, and they started stinging him on the face and on the neck. I don't like pain of any kind. But I am so thankful that he has those beehives, and he goes out and he takes care of those little bees out there. I say little bees. They are little, but there's a whole bunch of them, and they can do a lot of damage if they all get on you, like an Alfred Hitchcock movie coming after you. But when he brings that honeycomb out and he puts that honey in a jar and he hands it to you, huh, let's just go to heaven now. It's as good as it gets. It's the greatest possession. It's the greatest pleasure. It's the greatest protection. Verse 11, the first part, moreover, by them, your servant is warned. Listen, you want to make better decisions? Understand and read the Bible for yourself. Get to know it for yourself. It's not only the greatest possession and the pleasure and protection, it's the greatest profit. The second part of verse 11, and in keeping them, there is great reward. In this world, you may be persecuted for keeping the word of God, but when you stand before Jesus, you don't get into heaven for the works you do, but you'll be rewarded for the works that you do. And it's the greatest purification Verses 12 to 14, who can understand his errors? I mean, can you search all that there is in your life to expose the things that need to be made right before God? Even the best amongst us can't know everything about ourselves and all the areas where we may have something that needs to be confessed before God, but you know what can? The Word of God. He says, cleanse me, the psalmist says, from secret faults. That's things that nobody else knows about, maybe I don't even know about. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. That's the ones you know and you do anyway. Let them not have dominion over me. I don't want to be brought under their control. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. And then he cries out in this great prayer, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. The significance of Scripture, it's our greatest possession and greatest pleasure and greatest protection and greatest profit and greatest purification. I don't think probably many of you know this place, but I'm going to tell you about it because you need to know about this place and you need to go visit it. It's called the Smith House in Dahlonega, Georgia. It's in the Appalachian Mountains up in North Georgia. It was about an hour and a half from where we lived on Miriam Lane in Decatur, Georgia. And so it was one of those treks you could make in about an hour, 15 hour and 30 minutes. And you could be there. You could eat lunch at the Smith House. You could shop the shops that are in that little town. Uh, think uh, Gatlinburg, except scaled down and a lot more classy. I didn't say that, did I? Because I love Gatlinburg too. Sometimes I don't want to be classy. In the Smith House, they have this incredible, unbelievable southern cooking. None of this northern stuff. Scrapple. 
Nobody's heard of Scrapple in the Delana, in Delanica, Georgia. Nobody even wants it at the Smith House. You know what they want? They want grits. Everybody eats grits. Every Bible-believing, soul-winning, God-loving person eats grits. Mary and I both have been there on a number of occasions, not in many years, because we live too far from it at this point. But for more than a century, they didn't know that they had been built over a gold mine. During the renovation of the Landmark Hotel back in February of 2006, the workers discovered the entrance to a four-foot-wide hole under the concrete floor in the main dining room. The hole goes, down, goes straight down 19 feet to the entrance to a gold mine under the building. What? Why would you cover that up? Well, as the story goes, Captain Frank Hall built the house in 1884. The city would not permit him to dig for gold on the property because it would be too close to downtown. It would cause too much disruption. But with the discovery, it appears that Captain Hall built his house to cover up his mining operation until his health failed and he sold the land. The family sold the land. Chris Welch, who's now the owner, or was the owner of the hotel, said, we never would have known if we hadn't chipped up the concrete. For many years, the owners used to say to people who would come to eat, they would say, you're sitting on a gold mine. They had no idea just how true that statement was till 2006. Hey, you're sitting on a gold mine. You're sitting on a gold mine, and yet it lays over in the corner of our house, and we barely pick it up. We almost forget to bring it with us when we come to church. How can that ever be when you've got a gold mine in your hands? But let's talk thirdly and finally about the study of the Scripture. I want you to turn with me over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. I've got to hurry here. Stay with me. Come on. Move quickly. Chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. You know the verse. He says, be diligent, Paul talking to young Timothy, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. What's he telling you? What's he telling Timothy? What's he telling me? To be an effective student of the scripture, you need three things. Number one, you need desire. The word diligent literally means to be eager. Remember when you got up this morning and you were eager to eat breakfast? You remember when the service goes over, those of you that come to the second service on occasion and the service goes over noon and you're eager to get out, to get to the restaurant? The eagerness, we're to be diligent. Old, old, old King James says, study to show yourself approved. It means to be diligent about it, to be eager, to desire it with all of your heart. I mean, if you don't desire the word of God, something is spiritually wrong. As newborn babes, Peter says, as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word. Do you have to convince a baby to desire milk? Not unless there's an illness in the baby. To be an effective student, you need desire. To be an effective student, you need discipline. And you notice he goes on here, says, a worker who does not need to be ashamed you know, on Monday morning, you're probably like me. I don't always want to get up and go to work. Although I do love what I'm doing, so I don't have as much trouble as some of you do having to get up on Monday morning and go to work. The reality is a lot of days you get up and you don't want to have to go off to work, right? That's why 
right? That's why you got a lot of people who say, I don't want to go back to the office. I want to, tele, I want to telework. I want to sit in my pajamas. That's why a lot of people aren't coming back to church. I like to sit in my pajamas and watch the service online. Well, if you're sick or you're providentially hindered, that's okay. But if you're not sick or providentially hindered, you ought to be here with the people of God. Discipline. If you're going to study the Word of God, it takes discipline. You're not going to wake up one day and say, oh, all of a sudden I know all the Scripture." You gotta discipline yourself to read it. You gotta discipline yourself to study it, to take it in. You gotta discipline yourself. All you teachers in the room, all of you lovely teachers, thank God for you teachers. You had a lot of students like me. You probably just passed this along just to get us out of your class into the next grade. All you incredible teachers, thank God for every one of you. You're missionaries in the school system. Thank God for you. But you gotta understand something. You don't look at your first grader or your second grader. For that matter, you don't look at your 10th grader or your 11th grader and say, well, you know what, I hope you get this. You know what you tell them? You tell them if you don't apply yourself to this task, you won't, what with a class? You won't, what starts with a P, you won't pass this class. Now, I know there's some geniuses amongst us. I'm grateful to be one of them, but there's some geniuses amongst us. And some of you don't have to study for anything. When the teacher teaches it the first time, you got it. You don't have to go back over it. That was never me. I went back over it a dozen times and still didn't get it all. You tell those students they got to have discipline. You got to set aside time. You got to be at the right place. You got to get quiet. You got to study the material. You got to memorize. You got to learn it. There's got to be discipline. Number three, be an effective student, there's got to be diligence. He says, rightly dividing. The word of truth, diligence. Hey, look, sometimes we divide over the silliest of things, but doctrine is important. And rightly dividing the word of truth is important. And we're never going to stop telling you that doctrine is important. Let's just play all that stuff down because it keeps people away. Well, first of all, the gathering of believers is first and foremost primarily for the believer. We're always thankful for the unbelievers who join us, and we want them to know the love of Christ from us. But the reality is this is a family gathering. And doctrine is absolutely important. Doctrine is how you understand God. You've got to have diligence to rightly divide the word of truth. Do you understand what he's saying? He's telling us that this book that we hold in our hands that is so valuable, like a gold mine, that does all of these things for us when we read it and we learn it and we study it and we take it in and we meditate on it, that the reality is that the effort we put into it is worth, is, is worth the process. The process is worth the effort. Let me turn it around. The process is worth the effort. It's worth the effort. There was a man in Kansas City that was severely injured in an explosion the victim's face was badly disfigured. He lost his eyesight. He lost both of his hands. He was a new Christian, and his greatest disappointment was that he could no longer read the Scripture. Then one day, he heard about a lady in England who was reading Braille with her lips. So he ordered a Bible, parts of a Bible, in Braille. But much to his dismay, he discovered that even the nerve endings in his lips had been destroyed by the explosion. But one day... As he brought one of the Braille pages to his lips, his tongue happened to touch a few of the raised characters. His tongue touched a few of the raised characters, and he could feel them. And like a flash, he thought, I 
can read the Bible using my tongue. And as of the telling of that story, he had already read the Bible through four times in Braille with his tongue. What's your excuse? What's my excuse? There is no excuse. If we're going to have a deep spiritual walk with God, where we have a heart for God and we see things through the lens of God, we have the wisdom of God, where we know God more deeply, we have got to read this book. Now, I'm going to finish, but I'm going to finish with 10 points. So are you ready? Here we go, 10 points. Number one, set aside time daily. Put it in your calendar. Put it in, I saw a preacher one time, somebody called him and said he, didn't want, he really didn't want to meet with the person who was on the phone. He covered his eyes and said, I don't see any dates available. <laughs> now, I don't recommend doing that. That's a little bit dishonest. But you know what you can do? You can put it in your calendar. I don't have my calendar up because I got my phone on airplane mode because some of you are going to text me during the sermon and that will distract me. You can put it in your calendar, and this is the time that I'm going to meet with God, and I'm going to read his word, and then you can say, you know what, I've got a meeting that day. I've got a meeting at that time. Can we do it afterwards? Number two, pray before you begin. Isn't that what the psalmist in Psalm 119 said? Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. God, listen, this is a spiritual book. Did you get that? This is a supernatural book. You need the supernatural interpreter, the Holy Spirit of God, working in your life and through your life, bringing you into this book. He can interpret it far better than I can. Pray before you begin. Number three, read a little at a time. Now, here's the fact. I want you to read your whole Bible through. I want you to read from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. I want you to read every word, as one preacher said, from kiver to kiver. I want you to read everything in it. I don't want you to read the appendix in the back. I'm not interested in whether you read the maps or not or whether you read the concordance or not. But I want you to read every verse of the Scripture. But look, the place to begin is just little portions at a time. Number four, listen when you can't read. Listen when you can't read. You realize I, I, I learned something a number of years ago. Do you realize that none of the first century Christians had a Bible? Do you know why they went to church and why Timothy, Paul told Timothy, get, this is, these are his words, he says, give attendance to the reading of the Scripture. He says, give attendance to the reading of Scripture. That's what he, that's what he told the young preacher. You know why he said give attendance to the reading of Scripture? Because they didn't have one to carry home. And there's nothing wrong with listening to the reading of the Word of God. If you come to my house, my wife has this, this, she's got an iPad and she's got these, these headphones. I mean, she, she looks like a geek. <laughs> she's not a geek. And if she is a geek, she's a beautiful geek. But she walks around with her, 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 her iPad and these headphones. Honey, honey, hey, honey. You know what she's doing? She's listening to whomever that guy is on the YouTube Bible app, reading the New Living Translation while she walks and does her work. It's okay. That's all right. 
First century Christians had to listen to the word of God. Number five, start in the gospels. You say, well, I, I'm, I'm a little more advanced than that. Well, okay, I got you. But just start in the gospels because some of you are going to stop by the time you get to the, some of the genealogies in Genesis. Or by the time you get to the book of, uh, the book of Exodus and all of the explanation of the tabernacle. Or you get to the five different sacrifices in the book of Leviticus. Hey, just, 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 just start in the Gospels. Just start with Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, you're not, you, you don't possess eternal life, let me give you some advice. I, I dare you. I challenge you. Take the Gospel of, of John, just the Gospel of John. I dare you to read it through. I challenge you to read it through. Number six, think about what you've read. Are you like me? I read things and then I put them down and walk away from them. And then I think, what did I just read? When you finish reading, stop for a few moments. They call that what? It starts with the letter M. They call that not memorization. They call that what? They call that meditation. Stop and think about what you just read. Think about it. Turn it over and over in your mind for a little while. Number seven, be patient when you don't know with what you don't understand. Be patient with what you don't understand. So I got something here, preacher, I don't understand. So will you explain it to me? Now, I'm happy to help. Brother Tim's happy to help. Jeremy's happy to help. Nathan's happy to help. Matt's happy to help. Bill's happy to help. Uh, You know, all those pastors are happy to help. But you know the greatest thing that ever happens? Sometimes you're going to need that. But you know the greatest thing that happens is you say, you know, I don't know what that is. I'm just going to pray about it. I'm going to wait before God over the coming days. I I don't know how to explain this to you. I don't know how to tell you this. But there come those moments when there's something you didn't understand. You didn't run to a commentary and find out what somebody else had to say that it supposedly said. You just waited before God, and one day, God just connected it. And you said, wow, man. Instead of saying, isn't Warren Wiersbe some incredible writer and author? You said, isn't God some incredible writer and author? Number eight, look for Jesus in every passage. Do you realize Jesus is on every page of your Bible? Look for Jesus in every passage. You say, where is Jesus in the the tabernacle? He's all over the tabernacle. He is the lamb that is sacrificed. Every aspect of the sacrifices, every aspect of the feast, all of it points to Jesus. Look for Jesus in every passage. Read your Bible through the lens of Jesus. Number nine, write down a truth every day. One thing to remember every day. Write it down. Say, I want to remember it. Yeah, like you remembered uh, what? That you forgot. Write it down. I go from one room to the next. I have determined that the reason why I can't remember in the next room what I was supposed to do in the other room is the, the, the doorway, the, the framework of the doorway. When you walk through it, it's like walking through some kind of an invisible shield. <laughs> And it sucks it out of your mind. <laughs> Write down a truth each day. And number 10, finally, consider how it applies to your life. Okay? I see this truth. How does this apply to my life today? You understand that the Bible's like a telescope. If you look through, through a telescope, you see worlds beyond. But if you only look at the telescope, all you see is the telescope. It's the telescope, friends. 
We can look through it. I better put it over here so you can hear me. You, we, we can look through this. I can't see out of that eye. We, look, we can look through this telescope, all that it has to say, at the world around us. And we can leave it laying there and look at it. And it ain't never going to change us. We've got to get in the book. It's one of the seven habits of deeply spiritual people. By the way, you say, I missed a few days of reading. God isn't going to punish you. Pick up where you left off. Get moving again. You don't have to start over. Start where you stopped. Just keep reading the book. Hey, you, don't only, you not only need the reading of the book, you need a pastor teaching you the book. You need a pastor teaching you the book. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Lord, a few months ago, it's your word that revived me. Nothing's changed physically. But you've given me a new heart and a new passion. You've given me insights that I didn't have before, understanding that I didn't know. And Father, that didn't come through some mystical experience. That came through bathing my soul day and night and day and night and day and night and day and night in the scripture, meditating on the scripture, quoting aloud the scripture. I don't know what tomorrow holds. I don't know what the rest of this year holds. But Lord, I know you hold the future. My life is in your hands. And I know that you're at work even when I don't see you. Oh God, help us to see the value of your word and help us, Lord, today to commit ourselves to reading it every single day. And when we miss a day or two or three, that we don't guilt ourselves, we don't punish ourselves, we pick ourselves up and we get moving again and we keep reading line upon line, precept upon precept, growing a little here and a little there until we're that deeply spiritual person that you want us to be. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. You've listened to me preach the word of God to you today, but you don't know Jesus as your savior. You don't have the gift of eternal life. You think everything I'm saying is sort of wasted effort and wasted time. Why would I give an hour, an hour and a half to church service? But look around you. There's a whole lot of people who understand the value of God's Word. And you need to know it too. And you'll know it when you come to know Jesus. But the natural man doesn't receive the things of the Spirit. The reason you don't understand is because you don't know Jesus. Your first responsibility, the greatest thing you have at this moment is for you to say, Jesus, save me. Jesus, give me the gift of eternal life. Jesus, save me. It's the greatest thing today. Please say yes to Jesus and trust him for the gift of eternal life.